It is another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead, a retired broadcaster. Ron, we want to talk about a topic this time around on Making Money about big trend investing. So I guess the description you can sort of form in your mind, what's a big trend in investing? Well, a mega trend is really a powerful force within the economy that usually takes multiple decades to unfold. Megatrends are ideal platforms for the long-term investor, and obviously those are the type of individuals that, frankly, get the most out of our shows. And megatrends have a strength and duration that allows a person with a long time horizon to take positions and then add to them meaningfully along the way over time. And the advantage of investors, retail investors, looking at megatrend investing is that if you're trying to compete as a day trader, well, there's all these institutions out there that have computers and have algorithms in there, and you can't hope to compete with those guys. And Whereas with these megatrends that unfold over decades, there's lots of time to get in, and they can be very profitable for you. So they're ideal for the individual investor. Okay, so should we take a look at some individual trends then and sort of narrow it down a little bit, look at some sectors? Is that the best approach to this? Yes, I've got four trends I'd like to talk about today, and we'll give you a brief overview of each trend, and we'll give you uh, some ways to play it or some examples of ways to get invested in that particular sector. So I would grab a pen and paper, or uh, if you're listening to the podcast anyways, you can replay these sections over again. But these are four long-term plays that as an investor you can get involved in that should give you very meaningful returns over the longer stretch if you're patient. Okay, and the first one out of the box is very appropriate. It's the healthcare revolution. You know, I was reading some information on demographics, Gord, and over the last two centuries, you know, we witnessed virtually a medical and health revolution. Back in the year 1800, the country that had the highest life expectancy was Iceland, and it was only 43 years. Now, if you scroll, scroll forward to the present, you'll find that there's not a country on Earth that has a life expectancy of under 50 years, no matter, matter how hard or how bad its basic health infrastructure is. And today, the global average is 72 years. So we've come a long way, baby, as the, the saying goes. And if you look forward, you know, we're on the cusp of amazing advances in biotechnology, nutrition, pharmacology, surgical techniques. And they're literally going to revolutionize healthcare even more than they did in the past. So is the, is the I guess the upside of that is that people are living longer. Is the downside of that the expense involved therein, I wonder? Well, I'd say it's a downside if you're a government because you're going to have to spend a lot more or a bigger portion of tax money on health care. I mean, you look at just in the last five years alone, global drug usage has reached $1.4 trillion this year, and that's up 32% 
over the five-year period starting in 2015. Well, they bombard us with drug ads on television all the time. I'm not quite really surprised by that, Ron. <laughs> and you look at other areas of the world, especially China and Asia, where there's many countries that they haven't abolished poverty, but they've reduced it. You know, you look at even a, uh, two decades ago, well over half of China's population was poor. And now that portion has shrunk by four or five times. So you're seeing a dramatic push where you're getting a bigger and bigger middle class worldwide. And of course, one of the first things that middle class does is obviously they take care of food and shelter, but the next thing they look after is health care. So as that middle class demographic grows globally, you can expect health care demand to continue to grow at a very steady pace. So what is the best way to gain exposure to this? We've talked about, about pharma, pharmacological companies, Ron, and drug companies, and you know some of them are pretty pricey. Is, is going along an ETF route the best way to get in here? I think that for most investors, uh, an ETF gives you a broad-based play with many, many different individual securities in the pot. And so you look at companies in the past, if they've had a problem with their one of their drugs, there can be lawsuits that amount to billions and billions of dollars and can just absolutely sink an individual stock. But if you look across the entire sector, you get companies that produce drugs, you get companies that make medical devices, uh, you get companies that provide software. And so it is a very, very big area with lots of subsectors in it. And so a good way to play that would be an example of that would be the iShares Global Healthcare ETF. The symbol is H or sorry, XHC, trades in Toronto, and it has a management expense ratio of about 0.65%. And if you look at its five year return, it's up nine percent a year. And it's been a tough time for markets. It's one-year returns up 15%, which is way better than what the markets are doing. This is a, a good way, and there's many other ETFs that will give you global exposure to healthcare. This is just an example of it. But this is a way to get a broad-based exposure to uh, the entire sector by owning one security. And we should point out that the majority of that particular uh, ETF is, is in the U.S., so is there a hedge component involved in this too, Ron, in case of currency fluctuation? Yeah, they hedge the currency. So, for example, if the uh, Canadian, if the U.S. dollar goes down, because that's what you're buying into, and that's what most of the securities in this particular fund are, are that's where they're domiciled. So by, by having it hedged, if uh, the Canadian dollar goes up and these other foreign currencies go down, you've got some protection. Okay, the other one I, I just had a sip of, water resources, big area. You know, 70% of the earth is covered in water, but less than 1% of that water can be consumed as drinking water because most of it is salt water. You know, with global warming and the problems that you're seeing internationally where countries are fighting over water resources, it is one of the most bankable opportunities that I know of. And, you know, you just look at some of the statistics. 80% of global wastewater is not treated. 
there's an enormous amount of opportunity there because wastewater is going to have to be retreated and used over and over again if we're going to come anywhere near being able to supply all the demand that is going to grow over the next couple of decades. 20% of the world's population doesn't have access to clean drinking water. Here again, a tremendous amount of infrastructure has to be put in place to fix that. 2.1 trillion gallons of purified water leak from an aging U.S. water infrastructure system every year. 2.1 trillion gallons? Yeah. You know, I'm going to have to sit down and figure out how much land 2.1 trillion gallons of purified water would, would cover. Yeah, would irrigate. You know, Good but I Lord. would suspect it's a it's a very big amount, and that's just the water that leaks through the system. So, you know, you think of a modern country like the U.S. and they have big infrastructure problems. In fact, McKinsey and Company estimates that just to stay where we are, that's not to move ahead, but just to stay where we are, we need to spend $500 billion on infrastructure every year between now and 2030 just to stand still. Boy, that's a frightening scenario. You know, I, I was talking with a friend of mine here recently, and, and I hearkened back to an article in National Geographic. I would say it was probably the late 90s, the early 2000s, and it was about the Colorado River system and how that system at that time was almost at maximum for supplying, you know, Colorado, California, parts of Arizona. And, and obviously things haven't improved since that article was written. So this is a real key area. What's the, what's the best way to get involved here? Are there particular companies that you like? I think the best way to get involved with this is, once again, through, through an ETF. And iShares has a global water index, they call it. The symbol is CWW. It trades in Toronto. Most of the water infrastructure-type companies are American and European because they have lots of publicly traded utilities that deliver water to customers. And also, there's companies that make water filtration systems, that provide chemicals to clean water, that provide lab services, and the list goes on and on. And so to get a basket of these type of companies, the iShares Global Water Index is a way to do that. And because it's in Canadian dollars and hedged against other currencies, uh, you don't have to convert to buy this thing, and you do have some downside protection in case these other currencies fall. And I know we've touched on this briefly in previous episodes, Ron, but what about desalination? Is that, is that still a no-go, or is it just in its infancy? I think desalination is very much in its infancy. And there's places, for example, like Saudi Arabia, where unless you desalinate... Um, you don't have any water. You're not going to get water. I mean, people say, well, look, you can drill down to the sand. While you drill down to the sand, a lot of times what you're going to bring up is you're going to bring up brackish water, you're going to bring up water with a lot of minerals and a lot of salts in them, and you're essentially going to have to put them through a virtually a similar uh, process to, to recycle them anyway. So desalination, there's desalination stocks in here. In fact, uh, there's one that provides desalinated water all across the Caribbean on many of these islands, especially to golf courses where you don't often, you don't tend to get a lot of rain during tourist season, and so they use desalination. So this is a big and growing trend, especially when you see the costs of being able to desalinate 
have been coming down dramatically. Technology just gets better and better. Okay, let's move on to the next category here. I, I don't think this is any surprise either, and, and especially during the pandemic, we've seen a huge spike in e-commerce. And e-commerce, in spite of the huge spike, is still in the early stages globally. The penetration rates are growing at about 2% a year. So that if you look to 2025, they estimate that e-commerce is part of the, the total pie is going to have about a 30% market share. So it has a long growth path ahead of it, especially, you know, people have learned out of necessity to go online and have things delivered to them because they can't go to stores because many of them still don't have the staffing to open. And as we start the second wave right now, many stores are, by legislation, are being closed or just simply have uh, older people that work there, and they just can't get the staffing to come back. So uh, many of these companies, in order to survive, have uh, launched their own website or put stuff up for sale on Amazon or Alibaba or eBay or one of the big guys, because if they're going to survive, they've had to learn to do this. And in areas where populations are older especially, They've come to depend on getting things delivered to their door, even groceries. So let's take a look at, at, at four. The, the big one that jumps at about front, of course, is Amazon, right? Yeah. And Amazon, JD.com, which is Chinese. Alibaba, which is B-A-B-A, is Chinese. And eBay, well, obviously, that's an American. And there are very few e-commerce ETFs that aren't uh, just very small or have very high fees in them. So I think if you want exposure to this, look at individual stocks. And of course, these are, are just four examples, but you look at Walmart, for example. They are having a huge transition, and their e-commerce is now the fastest growing part of their business. So there's a lot of different ways to play this. Another but, one that pops to mind is Costco. They're getting big into e-commerce too, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, of course, uh, Costco is one of the most well-run retailers in the world. I have a suspicion that this company is known for executing whatever it does very well. And I don't think e-commerce for Walmart or, or Costco is going to be any different. I think they're going to be very competitive and very good at supplying the consumer with products. Okay, you talk next about the silver economy, and we're not talking about the precious metal, are we? No, we're talking about the senior population, and this is, blew me away when I looked at the statistic, Gort. The senior population is going to double to more than 2 billion people by 2050, so that's 30 years. And the biggest area of growth here, two-thirds of these numbers, are going to come from Asia. And that is an area where, frankly, they don't do a, they don't have a lot of healthcare infrastructure. Uh, they don't have a lot of, of insurance and healthcare products. So and, under-resourced then, right? Uh, totally under-resourced. So if you can find an insurance company that is growing in Asia, you know, uh, Sun Life is a good example, or you can find a medical company that is growing in a Asia. Medtronic, for example, is a, is a is a company that supplies joints and, and heart valves and, and all kinds of electronically implantable medical devices. They're growing like weeds over there. So you want to find companies that are 
if you can, North American, because they're easier to understand. And the rigor to list in North America is much higher than listing in Asia. So you don't have nearly the problems of graft and theft and, and all the other racketeering that goes on in places, especially that you don't understand. So there's some tremendous opportunities. Retirement homes, I haven't found anything in Asia yet that I've seen because a lot of retired families, they... They, they live with their relatives. Yeah, yeah. But, but as you get more of a middle class where where couples are out working all day and the kids are at school, there's going to be more and more homes that open up. And I think that is an area just to keep an eye on because I expect that's going to grow. And the final one here is is communications and social media, and I guess that ties in with the telcos then, right? Yeah. You know, literally you're seeing 67% of the world's population has a mobile device and 45% of the world's population is now on social media. So that's that's almost 4 billion people. For the for the average individual, it's very difficult to pick a technology because, you know, I was talking to one of my kids the other day about Facebook. My son looks at me and goes, Dad, Facebook's for old people like you. They've gone elsewhere, and they've migrated a couple of times to different platforms, and they keep migrating. So, frankly, I don't know which one of these social media platforms uh, it has is the long winner. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a long-term winner. But one thing I do know is that the backbone of social media right now is the telecommunications companies because they provide the digital pipelines that carry this stream of information. And 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years. The amount of data is just a tsunami, and they're creating data centers and more business and to help keep things moving online. So right now, I think a longer-term play, unless there's a technology disruptor in the next five or ten years, but I think... Um, telco companies like Verizon, Bell, Telus, uh, any of those guys are excellent ways to, to play this sector because you need that backbone, and the more data that goes over the backbone, the more money these guys make. Well, the telcos almost seem bulletproof right now like, because, as you say, everybody's got a phone, it seems, and yeah. they're on them constantly. <laughs> so I don't think they're going anywhere. I don't think so either. So the best way to look at these then, in some cases it's individual stocks, in some cases it's ETFs. Go back and listen to the episode again to get some guidance here. But this is to the long-term trends that we feel pretty comfortable are going to be around for a while. And like I say, it's very difficult if you're an individual investor to day trade. Literally only 1% or 2% of the entire population are fast enough, um, are, are skilled enough, to day trade and make money. But anybody can play longer-term trends. And we just discussed a few of them here today. If, if, uh, if you sit down and, and make a list or you're watching and you get an idea for a long-term trend, track it for a while and just think it through. But you can fill your portfolio with, with stocks and long-term trends that are good buy-and-hold candidates for the long pull, and you're going to do better than most because uh, you don't have to trade these things. They've got uh, profitability that's rising year after year because demand is going up year after year. 
Okay, Ron, well, we have a question from a listener that I think we should maybe address here. This comes from James. Uh, he's enjoyed the podcast, especially as the conversation relates to the disconnect between the economy and yet again, a high-priced stock market. But he's, he's wondering in particular about MFC, which is Manulife, is it not? Yeah, Manulife, I found, it has been one of the more aggressive insurance companies with their investment portfolio and with the way they insure. So if I had to rank the three in Canada, and don't forget, uh, I'm not an investment advisor anymore, so I can't give you personal advice, but I can tell you what I would do. And so I would rank them that my first choice would be Sun Life because uh, they get a good part of their revenue now is coming from Asia, and that's where the growth is going to be the next few years. And my second choice would be Great West Life. Here again, they get about half the revenue from North America, and they get a good chunk of revenue uh, from, from Europe as well. And my third choice would be Manulife. So first choice, Sun Life, which I own. Uh, second choice, Great West Life, which I own. Uh, third choice, Manual Life, which I don't. Okay, he, uh, he points out it pays a good dividend, but it doesn't seem to be any upward traction. So maybe they've got to look elsewhere to kind of improve the field, right? Well, if you go back to um, 2005, 2006, the stock is still down about 60% from its highs uh, 15 years ago. And the company is having a very, very hard time getting traction. And eventually, though, they're going to figure this out. But in the meantime, I just think that there's greener pastures elsewhere. Okay, if you have a question, don't forget you can reach us through our website, letsmakemoney.ca, or you can also go to the cfcw.com portal and send us an email there. It'll get to us either way, and we'll be happy to address it in upcoming episodes of Making Money. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.